from Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 8, the verses 6 to 7. Today we're going to be talking about love, uh, intense love, as it's described within this song, the, the greatest of songs. We do this that we might come to a deeper appreciation of the intensity which of the love which God has for his people. Especially the love which Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church, has for his bride. Now we approach Song of Songs the way we would approach other works of wisdom. We say, on the one hand, you know, there are words of wisdom here, especially for the original audience, the people who first would have heard it. Wisdom that you could say could even apply today. But we also say, let like all the scripture, these words are ultimately meant to point us further to Jesus Christ. And there we find their truest, their realest, their most beautiful meaning. And so we approach this text today, recognizing, first, you know, words of beauty and love expressed between one human being and another. But we also recognize there is more going on here. We are being told something of the love which Christ has for us. The Word of God, Song of Solomon 8, beginning at verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The Word of God. Our text, it comes from the end of Song of Songs. Uh, if you look at the verses which come just before it, you'll see that these words are, are spoken in a moment of, of great contentment and joy. As lover and beloved stroll into Jerusalem the lover leaning on the arm of her beloved. They're enjoying a moment of of peace, an intimate posture that, especially back then, would have only been suitable for for a bride and groom. And that moment of peace, that moment of of joy, as many of the problems that they've talked about in the Song of Songs have been somewhat sorted out, The woman says to her beloved, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now, when you hear the word seal, you you might think in the first place, you know, of a a little glob of wax, you know, that someone might put on a, a letter that would then be stamped, something with a signature and engraving. But the seal which the, the woman is talking about in our text isn't actually the, the stamped piece of wax or clay, 
It's the object used to do the stamping. Seals are especially cylinder seals. There were things used to mark your signature in the ancient world. They were engraved stamps or often little cylinders, which would be pressed or rolled in clay or wax to imprint a name or make an image on a tablet to document. And these seals, they were generally worn on a cord either hanging from your neck so that they would rest close to your heart. Or you would wear them strapped around your wrist upon a person's arm. This was done because you wanted your seal to be close to you at all times. For one thing, it was a valuable possession. You wouldn't want to lose it at any cost. You wouldn't want someone else to to take your seal away so that they could use it and pretend to be you. There's also the fact that you never knew when you might need to use your seal, when there might be a, a business transaction made, or some occasion in which you need to say, you know, I affirm what's on this document, or you can hold me to it. A seal was a valuable possession. And so saying, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, it's a way of saying, let me be at your side at all times. Keep us close. Let nothing separate us. It's a statement which points to the way that that love will often draw people together. Will make them want to, to spend time together, be in each other's physical presence. You know, couples that are in love, dating couples especially, they love to, to get together for any occasion, right? It could be late at night. They're like, oh, we could get together for half an hour. I will drive an hour out of my way to go see you. Spend that time together. Hour back home. We can think of how other forms of love draw people together. How familial love, you know, the love in a family will often draw parents and their children, maybe grandchildren, to all get together on a regular basis for for family dinners. You might think about how those who are friends you know, we'll often try to have regular get-togethers so they can be in each other's presence. We to enjoy the, the interests that bond them. Well, especially as believers, we can think of how Christ in love draws us to himself and promises to never let go. We can see in the Bible that Christ sets us as a seal upon his heart or arm. He brings us close and he guarantees that we shall remain there. The Apostle Paul, he asks in Romans 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? We know what the answer is there. 
The answer, of course, is that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Those he has brought to himself, those he ties like a cord around his neck and places near his heart or his arm aren't going anywhere. And they are sealed to him forevermore. In Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, we read, In him, that is, in Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Christ brings us close and he does not let go. Our God is not a God who is distant from us. Our Savior is not a figure in heaven who is unconcerned with us and what is happening in our lives at this time. Ours is a God who is near. Ours is a father and son who have sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. We have a God who values enough that he makes our hearts his very dwelling place, takes up residence within us as he goes about his work of renewing us. This is not a God we can ever then escape or flee from. This is not a God who is unaware of the trials and tribulations we experience in our lives. Because he is the God who is there. A God who demonstrates his love through his presence. And knowing that, as believers... Knowing as Christians the the efforts which especially Christ our Savior has gone to, to claim us as his people, as his bride. It is important for us to recognize the importance of being there for others. Being there for those we are called to love. We are to practice, we might say, a love of presence. When Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us, he's calling for a love in which we show up, in which we are present, in which we express our love to others by being around for them. That we might truly care for them with our very selves. To love others as Christ has loved us, we need to be there for others, especially with whom we are united through Christ. We have a calling to hold others close to our hearts and arms. We're called to not just keep, especially other believers, in our, in our thoughts and prayers. We are to come alongside them as they weep. 
We are to cheer with them as they rejoice. We are to build them up by being willing to stand next to them. We're to love by being present, by being available. By being people who are not just one in the spirit, but in the flesh. And if your response to all of that is, but I don't really want to have to spend more time with these people than I already do. Well, then we all have a lot of work to do. If we don't love getting to be with other believers, if we don't love being able to get together with with brothers and sisters in the faith, we are most assuredly doing church wrong at some level. I'm not saying in the church we should want to, to be there with one another at every moment of every day. I'm not saying the church needs to start a commune so that, you know, we wake up first thing in the morning, we step out our door, and it's like, there's a person from church, and there's a person from church, and there's a person from church. But I know a lot of believers who don't even love having to go to church twice a week to be around other Christians. And while it would be easy to simply blame those people on on things in their own lives, perhaps it is also good for us to, at times, look at ourselves and consider, do we make others feel loved when they get together with us? Do other people feel loved when they go to the effort of physically entering the doors of a church and coming into its sanctuary and worshiping with others? Do we make others aware that this is a place in which they can experience love? This is a place in which to be supported by other human beings. Do we teach others, do we show to others by our own words and actions that that their physical presence, their willingness to gather with us, to come together with us, to be near us, is appreciated because we love them and we love their being there. That we love getting to have this opportunity to serve the Lord, build his kingdom with other people. Because that's what true love, God's love, should be inspiring in us. A desire to to see churches which are not just united in, in one spirit, one faith, but also in a real sense in one body, one place. Now the woman speaking in our text in Song of Solomon's, She justifies her her desire to be near her beloved, to be placed by a seal, to be close to him, saying, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. In other words, it's something which does not let go. Now, I recognize, you know, today, perhaps in modern-day poetry, comparing love to death is not the thing to do. 
It was certainly a common thing in the ancient world. There was certainly a thought, it's natural to compare love to death. Because what could be stronger? What, after all, can resist death? Human beings can can slow down death. They can delay it for a while. You could get fit, eat right, maybe add a couple years to your life. But only God can truly overcome death. Only God is truly as strong and stronger than death. Love, then, is powerful stuff. Love is something strong enough that it can even motivate people to face something as powerful and terrible as death. Jesus even tells us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's saying true love even allows a person to face the greatest of enemies. And of course, we say that knowing that Jesus himself, because of the very love he bears for us, faced death and overcame death. We see in Christ our Savior love as strong as death because the love he felt for us as he bled and died upon the cross, bearing the punishment for all the wrongs we have ever done. That love led him to face death, experience death, undergo death, conquer death. His love for us is so strong that it even enabled him to overcome the seemingly strongest thing in all creation. Love, we are to understand, is one of the most powerful things in existence. For it is in love that God brings about the creation of his family. It's in love that God decided that his eternal son would be the first of many sons and daughters in the eternal family that will last forever. As we read in Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love, he, that is God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself, sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. See, the Father loves the Son. And that love of the Father for his Son, it has expanded outward. It has expanded invincibly outward to claim us as well and bring us into his family forever. That invincible kind of love is meant to shape our perspective on what it means to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Our love is to reflect something of the strong, unwavering, committed love which God has shown to us. And so our love for one another and our love for the people around us should not simply be based on how they treat us, how they interact with us. Should not simply be based on feelings that it might disappear at a moment of hardship or stress. Rather, our love is to be shaped, molded by the powerful desire to bring about good in the lives of others as God has brought about good for us. That isn't to say love shouldn't involve strong feelings. Our text talks about, you know, love's jealousy is unyielding as the grave. The word jealousy there might perhaps be also translated as something like passion. But either way, there's certainly a point here that the love should stir up strong feelings among us. Hearing about God's love should stir up strong feelings among us. If we respond to the good news about Jesus Christ, to the good news that God has loved us, does love us, despite our sins, despite the things that we have done, despite our constant rejection of him, if we respond to the love of God, which has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ, his son, with a shrug, and uh-huh, we are missing something. even if we have heard about it numerous times before. Because I know that's the inevitable objection. Well, we're, just, we're not that excited hearing about God's love because we hear about it all the time at church. But I suspect if you have a friend who's like, I love you, man. It might not feel quite so special the hundredth time he says it, but I suspect you're still going to appreciate it. Or if you're married and your spouse says, I love you for the thousandth time, it should still speak. Because there's a good chance you've done a hundred things which ought to convince them to say otherwise in that time. They're still choosing to say, I love you. Well, we ought to appreciate hearing about God, about his love, time after time. Because we never deserve to hear it. There's no point where we can say, yes, but this Sunday, I was a really great Christian. So this Sunday, I deserve to hear God say, I love you. We're never there. When we hear about the love of God, when we hear about the things God has done in Jesus Christ, we're always hearing about something we haven't earned, haven't merited, haven't achieved, don't measure up to. If God's love and hearing about it does nothing for us, maybe we're missing an appreciation for just how badly we have offended God with our sins and the ways we've hurt others. Maybe we need to focus a little bit more on just how often we do commit sins. How often we do the selfish thing rather than the unselfish thing. The self-centered thing rather than the other-centered thing. The sacrificial thing 
rather than the thing we feel like doing. Maybe we're missing an appreciation for the fact that his love does not need to be earned or deserved. I know there's many who question God's love as a result. They can't enjoy it. They can't revel in it because they think, but maybe I'm not good enough for God's love. That's not how it works. No one is good enough for God's love. And yet he has sent the Savior to claim us that we might be saved, we might be his, just by believing he did it. Maybe we're missing an appreciation for all the pain which Christ had to endure as our sins were laid upon his shoulders. And it's worth reflecting at times what the Bible says about the future that awaits those who want nothing to do with God, who want to face him with their sins all over them. The English Standard Version to use here, it says, it's, that is, love's flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. The Hebrew here, we might say, it's trying to convey that the fire that love summons is just the mightiest flame imaginable. It's fair to say that love can burn with such a passion that it it resembles a flame which only God himself could summon. Bigger than any bonfire. Reflecting on what God has done for us out of love. Forgiving our sins, our failures, our shortcomings, our unworthiness. It's to lead us to appreciate his love and it's also to make us think about how we love others. And none of us are perfect. We've all been shown love we don't deserve. So how do we show love to those around us? We need to show it graciously, mercifully. We need to show it to the friend who's perhaps a bit too wrapped up in what's going on in their life to, to pay attention to what's happening in ours. Say, that can be okay. I can love you anyways. We needed to show it to the person at church who who isn't really great at saying hi or asking how we're doing or helping out. We need to show it to the neighbor around us who might never be in a position to repay any of the kind things we do for them just might not be inclined to do so. We need to love selflessly, joyously, in response to the love of God, which cannot be measured. Because that is our motivation for loving others. We are told in the Bible, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love, all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. There is a love which is invincible and priceless. Sometimes we see a glimpse of it in humanity and how people love other people. 
Sometimes you you see a a married couple who have overcome all sorts of obstacles in their marriage together. You know, they've been in circumstances that have driven them to metaphorical hell and back. People who enjoy a deep and abiding love despite years of, of health concerns or poverty or difficulty conceiving or failed attempts at adoption, job loss, Betrayal by other close friends and family. Yet through it all, stick with each other, loving each other. Sometimes we see it in friendships. Friendships which last decades, which endure even though, though life has pulled those friends apart. You have the friend who in a time of need will show up on your door even though they had to fly 14 hours from Australia or something like that. The friends who will get together after a decade apart and it's like nothing has happened because they just have a deep love for the other. But we see the invincibility and the pricelessness of love best in Jesus Christ. Death the devil, and all the dark forces of this world could not stop. We see it in a humble Savior who was willing to give up everything, give up the glories, the praises of heaven to come down to earth to be mocked and laughed at by the little creatures he was responsible for creating in the first place. We see it best in Christ. And seeing it, we can grow in it, learn to imitate it. We can grow in faith. We can grow in love for our God. So that we ourselves come to a point where it matters more to us than anything else the world has to offer. Maybe we don't see that all the time around us, but it is there. You know where to look for it. I recently read through a book called Reformation Women, a short book with a number of biographies about uh, women who played significant roles in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformation of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. It was a book that was both terribly depressing and also very encouraging. Depressing because of the many terrible things which many of these women had to endure because of their belief that Jesus Christ is enough and that his work on our behalf is all they needed for salvation. It was also very encouraging because it spoke of how the Holy Spirit truly does enable people to love God with such burning intensity that they will give up all for him. You can think of many of the apostles who would give up their life in the service of the kingdom. Who would say to the, the Jewish ruling council, which had just had them flogged, we will listen to God rather than men, the unspoken, even though it will cost us everything. But we don't just see it in people in the Bible, we even see it in people in history. I'll give just one example. Louise de Coligny. She was a woman who lost her husband and her father 
during the St. Bartholomew Day's Massacre. You may never have heard of that massacre, but it was a day in which there were targeted assassinations and mob violence so that tens of thousands of French Protestants lost their lives. And that day, Louise was orphaned, widowed, subsequently exiled, and in poverty as all her family's goods and possessions were claimed by the Roman Catholic state of France. She would have to flee for her life. She would, for a time, find some protection under the care of Frederick III, the same Frederick, you might know, who is responsible for the creation of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our confessional documents in the Canadian Reformed Churches. Later on, she would marry a, a Dutch Protestant prince known as William of Orange, only to see him assassinated one year later. It's a woman who time and time again experienced poverty and suffering and loss for the sake of her faith. And upon her deathbed, she would be confronted by no less than the infamous Cardinal Richelieu of Three Musketeers fame. Cardinal Richelieu would come to her on her deathbed. She had two Protestant pastors by her sides and say, Madam, there are devils near you. And she would respond for herself that she was unshaken in the principles of the Reformed faith and her hope of heaven through Christ's merits alone. She was just one of many women who would suffer the loss of loved ones, of children, of homelands, of possessions, of noble titles, of all that they had because they were convinced of the all-sufficient, all-encompassing love of Christ. I mention her as just one example of how God does indeed lead people to value his love and share it and imitate it. The Spirit does indeed have the power to give us a love for God which surpasses all. Perhaps you already possess it and praise God. Or perhaps you would like to possess it. Pray to God. For he is one who grants what we ask for in his name. As followers of Christ, we are to live convicted that God loves us. Jesus Christ loves us. The Holy Spirit loves us. And they are prepared to work in us powerfully that we might have an astounding and amazing love for others. Let us pursue that for the glory of his name. Amen.